Well, this morning I want to begin this way. If I were to ask you today what the greatest invention of all time is, what would you say? The greatest invention of all time. Now, there are a lot of answers to a question like that, but I think if push came to shove, we might come down and come to believe and agree on the fact that the greatest invention of all time is the fast forward button. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, the fast-forward button, isn't that a great invention? It has offered us so much. With a fast-forward button, you don't have to listen to the songs you don't like. Uh, With fast-forward, you can get to the crunch time in the game. You don't have to watch all the early innings. But most of all, and I think we'll agree on this one, with fast-forward, you don't have to watch all the commercials. Amen? Now, so we love the fast-forward button. However... When it comes to the fast-forward button, it can become our enemy when it comes to the burial of Jesus. You see, the problem with most of us is that we just fast-forward through the burial. We just choose to skip it. Uh, We're really into the details and the meaning of the cross. We love to celebrate the wonder and the beauty of the resurrection, but the burial, well, there's nothing there. So we'll just fast forward through that. But this morning, I'm going to say this. Not so fast. Don't you dare do that, because today we need to stop and talk about the lessons God has for us in the burial of the body of Jesus. Let me explain to you how important that this is. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, And he summarized the gospel in three specific points. And here's what he said. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to those same scriptures. In essence, the gospel is this, that Christ died, Christ was buried, and then Christ was raised on the third day. If you ignore the burial of Jesus, you're omitting one-third of the gospel message. And so today, I want us to read together the way Mark describes the burial of Jesus. I want you to go ahead and take your Bibles in hand and go with me to Mark chapter 15. And as you're going to Mark chapter 15, verse 40, I need to remind you that we are still, yes, still, in our sermon series titled, The Remarkable Life of Jesus. If you haven't been with us, if you're a first-time guest, we've been studying in Mark's gospel since last August. And now we're on the next-to-last message in the entire series. Uh, We've been systematically listening to the way Mark described Jesus' life, and now for several weeks we've been in Jesus' final earthly week. Well, we're going to preach today on the gospel of Mark, And next Sunday on Easter will be our final message as we finish up Mark's gospel. Let's go ahead and stand together as we honor the reading of God's word today. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40. We're going to read all the way down through verse 47. Uh, You can look on the screen. You can open up your own copy of God's word. You can open up your Bible app. It matters not to us. Let's all center ourselves, however, before the word of God. Here's how Mark's gospel offers it to us. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Hosus and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with the, 
with him to Jerusalem were also there. But it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, that is, the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance and, and of, of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, saw where he was laid. Now, before you're seated today, let me say this. Today, as I said, we're not going to fast forward. We're actually going to hit pause. And as we hit pause, we're going to consider the lessons that God has for us in the burial of his son, Jesus. Let's pay careful attention today. God bless you. You may be seated. So this morning, I've titled the message, you may have seen that on the screen or maybe have read about that in the bulletin, I've titled it, Buried, He Carried My Sins Far Away. Now, if you've been in the church any length of time, you already know that your pastor borrowed that sermon title from a hymn that we sing in the church. It was a song that was written in the late 1800s by a Presbyterian minister whose name was J. Wilbur Chapman. Now, Chapman's story is interesting because it leads to some significant things in the church. Listen to the way this story goes. Chapman was inspired by the evangelistic preaching of a man named Dwight L. Moody. And because he was so inspired, he became an evangelist himself. In one of the crusades, a professional baseball player named Billy Sunday came to attend the crusade, and that night he came to Christ. Billy Sunday, we know, went on to be one of the most effective evangelists in all of America. And on Sunday, or excuse me, Billy Sunday was invited to preach a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, but he was already booked, so he got his assistant, whose name was Mordecai Ham, to go preach the crusade. Mordecai preached in Charlotte, and one night a tall, lanky boy who worked on a nearby dairy farm came to surrender his life to Jesus, and his name was Billy Graham. And as we know, Billy Graham has preached to more people than anyone else in history. So now you go all the way back to our author of our song, to the composer and the writer of this famous song. It's titled, One Day, and it tells the story of Jesus in five simple verses. Now, a few years ago, those of us who are into modern Christian music or radio music of Casting Crowns revised it, and they called it Glorious Day. But here's what I want to do. I want to focus this morning on the chorus of that song because I think it best summarizes the gospel, and I want us to sing it together several times in this sermon. And if you don't know it, that's fine. Just listen to those around you who are going to sing it. Those of you that know it, sing it with me. Living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Goodness. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming 
O glorious day. Now that song this morning is our foundation. And in that song, we're going to find the value of the burial of Jesus Christ. So I want to, I want to pull out of our passage today three truths about the burial of Jesus. And then after we do those three, we're going to look at one takeaway truth for our lives. Here's the first thing we need to learn. Jesus' burial was conducted by two very unlikely undertakers. Now, who are the people that buried Jesus? Were they the 12 disciples? Absolutely not. Those 12 disciples were actually hidden and hiding. They were scared for their lives. They were not going to be a part of burying Jesus. But there was a man, as we read, named Joseph of Arimathea. And then we find in the other Gospels, he was accompanied by a man named Nicodemus. And those are the two men that came and removed the body of Christ from the cross. Those are the two men that prepared the corpse and carried it to the tomb. Now, in in recent weeks, I've been actually showing a variety of paintings. And I want to show you one of those paintings today. This is is, um, actually produced by the Italian master Caravaggio. And the painting that you're looking at today is called The Entombment of Christ. Uh, Currently, it's located in the Vatican Museum. And you can see if you look really close, I'll have to describe a few things because it's so dark. I'm sorry about that. But you can look in that and you can see that Mary Magdalene's head is bowed, weeping into a scarf. That's actually not the right painting. That's a painting that we showed two weeks ago. So just forget looking at that, okay? All right? We're showing you the wrong painting. But, but in this painting, Mary is, her head is bowed, weeping into a scarf. Uh, the mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is depicted as a nun, so the, the painter takes some artistic license. Joseph has his legs, Jesus' legs, and then Nicodemus is lifting his torso with his wound covering Jesus' side. Now, obviously, if you could see the painting, you would have noticed that the, that the artist had a sanitizing of the scene. But here's what I want you to do with me. Just visualize this. I want you to imagine for a moment what a gruesome task those two men faced. I mean, we just read that story like it came out of a Sunday school special, right? No blood, no gore, no issues whatsoever, right? They just took it down and then they they put it in a tomb. But I want you to think for a moment what they went through. First, those men had to climb up and remove the nails from Jesus' hands and feet. He was embedded into a cross. They had to lower his bloody, mangled body down to the ground. They had to remove a razor-sharp crown of thorns from his head. And I shudder to think of the job that they faced. And here's what it reminds me of. Folks, it was an act of love. That's what those men did. So let's learn a couple of things from them. Here's the first thing. Joseph had the courage to ask for the corpse of Jesus. Now, we're studying today Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel, but now I want you to take you over to Matthew's gospel because here's what it tells us in addition to the story. It says, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Christ, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. So Matthew adds three important details that we don't find in the Gospel of Mark. First, Joseph was what? A rich man. 
Second, it was Joseph's tomb they had placed in the body, uh, where they placed the body of Jesus. And then most importantly, Joseph, he said, was what? A disciple of Jesus Christ. John even tells us that he was a secret believer because he feared the Jews. Now, folks, it takes a lot of courage for him to publicly identify himself as a friend of Jesus to Pilate. Let me ask you today, I want to I go here with you. How many of you today say, well, pastor, I'm kind of a secret disciple myself? You see, there may be people watching online today that they didn't choose to come to church because they're at home somewhat hiding, and yet they, they believe in Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, but they're just keeping it all secret. I need to tell you something today, if that's you, that there's no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, either the secret will destroy the belief, or the belief will destroy the secret, and that's exactly what happened in Joseph's case. His love for Jesus overwhelmed the secret, and he went public with his following of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, would you be willing to speak up for Jesus regardless of what others say? So that's just a little bit about Joseph. But now let's go to the second guy, Nicodemus. Folks, Nicodemus comes into the light to help the man who told him he needed new birth. Now, we learn this from John's gospel. And if you'll fast forward with me over to John chapter 3, I'm going to remind you of one of the most important historical passages in all the scripture. Because here's what it tells us. Let's just connect all these dots for Joseph. Let's go to this moment of burial. It says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus by night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking down Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. So, so we know this Nicodemus, don't we? He's famously from John chapter 3. The most famous verse in all the Bible is what? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, that verse comes from the story with Nicodemus. He sneaked out to Jesus in the middle of the night. He didn't want anyone to see him with Jesus the Christ. And Jesus told him that he had to be born again. Now we don't hear from Nicodemus ever again until right now. And I think that's fantastic because it reminds us that Nicodemus believed in Jesus and he followed Jesus. Folks, I want you to mark this. There's always a cost when you choose to follow Jesus. And Joseph and Nicodemus, they had a lot to lose. By identifying with Jesus, they could have lost their own life. By, by identifying with Jesus, they could have been expelled from the Sanhedrin. By touching this corpse, they rendered themselves ceremonially unclean for seven days. And that means they were not allowed to participate in the Passover. But here's the good news. They had something better than the Passover. They had literally in their hands the real Passover lamb. The lamb of God 
who came to take away the sins of the world. Friends, they got to be pallbearers for the Prince of Peace. What a funeral service that we're reading about today. No sermon, no hymns, no eulogy, but a lot of love. You see, that's how all of this story begins. That's why the burial is so important. Jesus' burial was conducted by two very unlikely undertakers. Let's move to the second point. The second point that I want us to focus on is Christ's burial was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this today, but you just need to know this, that every single aspect of Christ's burial was predicted in the Old Testament. And one specifically I'm going to focus on is from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah predicted that Jesus would pour out his life unto death and would be numbered among the transgressors. That means that Jesus was going to be crucified with wicked men. Now, have you ever thought about the plan the Romans had for Christ's body? Most people haven't thought about that, but what you need to know is that Romans typically left a dead body on the crucifixion cross for days on end. It would hang there, It would begin to rot there. The birds would come and begin to feed upon that dead corpse. That was the plan for Christ's body. And once they took it down, they were going to cast it away in some disregarded ditch reserved for wicked criminals. But praise God that a rich man named Joseph stepped in and changed Christ's assigned burial place. And now that you know all that, I want you to listen to Isaiah's prophecy. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, 9. It said, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Friends, that's a prophecy that was written 700 years before it ever happened. You see, although Christ's body would be in this assigned grave of the wicked. He was placed in this borrowed tomb of a rich man, and it's okay that he borrowed it because he wasn't going to need it very long. All right? Let's move on to the third point. The third point is Jesus' burial symbolizes the removal of our sins. Now, this is a very important part for you to set up and take notice and start paying careful attention because here... The burial of Christ becomes symbolic. Now, the Apostle John gives us a very important detail about the location of the tomb, and that's found in John 19, verse 41. Here's what he tells us. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, you know that we talked about a place called Golgotha. The Bible tells us that was the place of the skull. It's a rock cliff on the outside edge of Jerusalem. The rocks are sloughing away. You can still go there today, and you can see that at certain times, it looks like sunken eyes and the sunken face of a skull. And it's at that place the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified. It's, a loca- it's located within 100 feet of a first century vineyard that contained a cistern capable of holding 200,000 gallons of water. And less than 100 feet from that underground cistern is a tomb that's being cut into a limestone cliff. Now, if you go to the Holy Land with us, you're going there, right? 
I've been there several times, and I'm going to testify to the fact, folks, that tomb is empty. There's nobody in it. Because Jesus rose from the dead. But here's what we know. It had to be a rich man's tomb. It had three chambers. And it was right in the middle of a garden. Many people believe that's the tomb where Jesus was laid. You say, Pastor, what's so important about all that? Well, let's go back to the symbol. And I want you to think symbolically. And here's what I want us to learn first. That human sin began and was buried in a garden. Human sin began and was buried in a garden. The human story began in a garden. Which garden? Say it out loud. The Garden of Eden, right? It really was paradise in every way. There was no sin, perfect fellowship with God. But then humanity, Adam and Eve, sinned and they were separated from God by that sin. But when Jesus entered the tomb, he bore our sins in his body. And when he came out of that tomb, friends, our sins were paid for and gone forever. I remember years ago studying the greatest allegory ever written. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. It was penned by a Baptist preacher whose name was John Bunyan. And the main character in the story is a man named Christian. Now, there's no hidden meaning there, right? His name is Christian, okay? In one scene, Christian, or a Christian, is is running up a hill, and he's burdened by this terrible load on his back. That's sin. And then Bunyan writes this. Listen to these words. He ran thus until he came to a path ascending, and upon that path stood a cross, and a little below it, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened off of his shoulders. It fell from his back, it began to tumble, and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Friends, that's the symbolic meaning of the tomb of Jesus Christ. The tomb of Christ consumed the sin of the whole world. So we ought to sing our song again, shouldn't we? Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away. Let's stop right there. Buried he carried my sins far away. And that leads to the second symbol of the burial. Now this one you're going to have to pay attention for because this is Old Testament history. It involves the Jewish scapegoat. Now in the Old Testament world, the Jewish scapegoat symbolically carried away the sins. But Jesus literally took our sins away. We're talking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, there were two male lambs that were used. They were called goats, okay? And one goat was slain, and the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies, but there was another goat that was left alive. It was called the scapegoat. The high priest would approach the scapegoat. He would put his hands on the head of the goat, and by so doing, symbolically, he would transfer all the sins of the nation of Israel onto this goat. And then another priest would take it as far away as humanly possible so that that sin could never return again. 
Now think about that. That's what Christ did for you. The Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross, all our sins were transferred onto him. When he entered the tomb, he was taking them far, far away. You say, Pastor, how far? Well, listen to Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins. How far is the east from the west? We should all go down to the equator, shouldn't we? And if you start driving east, let's just assume you're just going to drive east. How far do you drive till you get to west? Well, it never happens, does it? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Symbolic, isn't it? Jesus' burial symbolizes the burial of your sin. So now the takeaway truth. What do we go home with? What's in this passage today that really is for all of us? How does it apply to our life? Well, here's the truth that I began to realize. When we are baptized, we identify with Jesus. Right behind me is our baptistry. And obviously we didn't baptize anybody today, but but when we do, it symbolizes a burial. You're buried to an old way of life. You rise up from the water into a new life in Christ. From the beginning of the church, that's what baptism always looked like. It was supposed to be by dunking, by immersion, by submerging under the water. It was supposed to be for believers only. The practice of sprinkling babies that some of you may be accustomed to, it was an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not in your Bible. And according to Roman Catholics, baptism became one of the seven sacraments. So let me tell you some history. During the 16th century, many people started reading their Bible, praise the Lord, right? And they began to realize that it was not, the way the Roman Catholic Church was living it out was not accurate to the text. There was a reformer by the name of Martin Luther who really got angry about it. He realized that there was never supposed to be a pope who acted like a king. He called the pope the Antichrist. He was really aggressive. He referred to the church in Rome as the synagogue of Satan. He got himself in a lot of trouble. But he was so upset primarily about baptism. He realized that sprinkling people was not biblical. He realized that sprinkling babies certainly was not biblical. He realized that baptism was to be for believers only by dunking them under the water. In other words, when you're baptized correctly, dying to your sin, rising to walk in the newness of life, it's there that you identify with Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Most of us, all of us should, stand and put our hands over our heart facing the American flag during the Pledge of Allegiance, right? We should do that, right? And when we pledge of allegiance to the flag, what do we identify as? An American. We're a citizen of the United States. And in the same way, when you're baptized, you identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you are buried, your old way of life. But then you rise to walk in the newness of Christ. 
you visually identify as a follower of Jesus. When you come up out of that water, it's a beautiful picture that you have new life in Christ. And if you've yet to follow Jesus in baptism, friend, this is my appeal to you. I ask you, I urge you to come and be baptized and identify with the Lord Jesus. You say, Pastor, will that make me more holy? No, it won't. But it will publicly let the world know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So to finish out today, why don't you stand to your feet with me? And as you stand, I want you to review the gospel one more time with me in this song. We're going to sing it one more time. You ready? Put the words on the screen. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day he's come.